Chasing Leviathan is a podcast about pursuing truth, one big question at a time through the discipline of listening. Truth is too big to tame. But if we pay close attention, we might get the chance to glimpse something truly magnificent. So please join me in this pursuit one week at a time. Hello and welcome to Chasing Leviathan. I'm your host, PJ Weary, and I'm here today with Dr. Michael Sawyer, Associate Professor in the Department of English at University of Pittsburgh and the Director of Graduate Studies. And we're here talking about his book, An Africana Philosophy of Temporality, Homo Liminalis. Uh, Dr. Sawyer, wonderful to have you on today. No, I really appreciate the opportunity. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Uh, Dr. Sawyer, um, why this book? Well, well, I need to finish my PhD first. So, so this is my dissertation. Oh, apologies. <laughs> so, so there's that, right? It was kind of a group as a practical matter. But uh, to be honest, no, it was a, I was really fortunate, uh, my grad program, to be given the latitude to kind of write the book that I wanted to write, as opposed mm. to, you know, sometimes, and I know this from being the director of graduate studies here at Pitt, sometimes the uh, parameters of a dissertation can be fairly limited, right? But I was afforded the opportunity by my committee to uh, kind of branch out and take into consideration some some broader concepts. And to me, temporality is one that occupies, it, it really preoccupies in certain, certain ways, uh, many different systems of thought, but particularly in the tradition that I'm pursuing, kind of African-American thought, uh, diasporic thought, radical thought, kind of on an international basis, uh, temporality is, is one of the central concepts for me. So that's, that's why the book happened outside of kind of practical considerations that I had to write a dissertation. <laughs> yeah, but we can't, we can't ignore the uh, practical considerations for sure. Right. right. Um, but Queequeg, do you see, was a creature in the transition stage, neither caterpillar nor butterfly. Talk to me about what Homo liminalis, if I'm saying that correctly, uh, what, that, what that means and why that's the subtitle. Yeah, so... This is one of those things. So the, the original title of it, the title of my dissertation was Homo Liminalis, The Tears of the Caterpillar, basically. And, and the, the uh, publishing company had, had different ideas about that. But so to this point, right, I'm, part of my work is I'm preoccupied with, with Moby Dick in lots of ways, uh, some of them positive, some of them negative. But, uh, and Kwekwe is just that, right? There's that, that passage that you just quoted where he's, obviously a, a human being, but considered from those outside of his own traditions to be somehow not quite human, caught someplace between the two, right? And that seems to me to be a central trope from outside of, of Black sociality or uh, conversations about positive Black subjectivity that, you know, from uh, kind of the middle passage forward, wherever you decide to date the encounter of uh, Europe, basically, or those outside of Africa proper with, with uh, black subjects, people who became, you know, universally understood as black subjects. There's this question of how they fit to the question of humanity, right? So part of the work, and, and to me, it's a binary proposition, right? Because the question I was asking, and I asked during the, during the book in certain ways and still preoccupies me, is whether the caterpillar, whether the butterfly remembers being the caterpillar, whether the butterfly misses being the caterpillar, whether the caterpillar anticipates becoming a butterfly. And then even so more importantly, what are those stages in between the caterpillar and butterfly that are just beyond our system of cognition, right? That happen kind of inside, inside the, uh, the, the, the place of transformation of the caterpillar to the butterfly, right? That whole stage that we just really now, scientists are just really now becoming familiar with what happens inside the cocoon, right? But just to be able to understand there's all this process going on that to me alters the temporal relationship of that thing that's both caterpillar and butterfly and everything in between at the same time to itself in important kinds of ways and also to the world outside of it. So that's where that, that came from. And that, that part, that quote from, from Moby Dick was really generative for the, uh, for the book in itself and the way I think about that. Uh, one, thank you. So Quique, how you pronounce it, right? Um, I have a friend who cannot stop raving about Moby Dick and I have the un 
fortunate history of trying to read Moby Dick because people told me it was good when I was eight. Oh, yeah. And uh, I got bored. And so I have this like I have this blocker. I have not gotten around to reading it. And then I'm continually told how good it is. So, you know, at some point I will maybe do some therapy and get around that that experience of being an eight year old trying to read Moby Dick. But um, <laughs> it's not um, about. Yeah, it's, it's one of those things that happens where and some of this is from the, the kind of family, the popular way that Moby Dick approached the imagination from the family classics thing with Gregory Peck, right? Where it's really about this kind of fight with the whale. And the book is very, has very little to do with that, right? Because I've talked to students and like, what happened to the whale stuff? I'm like, well, we'll get around to that. Like the last 25, 30 pages of the book of the 600 or so pages. <laughs> yeah, you got to get yeah. through all. So. Well, I mean, and it looks like that too, right? You have the Count of Monte Cristo, which is a very approachable adventure tale. And it's sold in the same edition as like Moby Dick and like, very, very different types of stories, right? Right, absolutely. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about uh, where how temporality plays into this? So you've used that, obviously, that relates to time, but you're using that slightly differently. What's that distinction, and um, how does your theory of temporality play into all this? Yeah, so there's these kind of classic examinations of what exactly time happens to be, right? And kind of the one of the formative ones for this book and, and in kind of the Western thinking tradition is when uh, St. Augustine is reviews this in, in the Confessions, right, and, and, and is asked, you know, what is time? He's like, everyone knows until they're actually asked what it is, basically, right? It's like, you know, kind of know what it is. It's like, you know, we're going to meet today at this time and, you know, we'll be there, et cetera, et cetera, right? But to me, that's that's something that's a kind of measure or common understanding of of a relationship between uh, individuals, societies, institutions about many times a place and events that have to happen at a particular time, right? And also the linear uh, understanding of time where we live in a world of kind of befores and afters, right? Like, you know, for the rest of our existence, probably everyone will remember the time before and after the pandemic, right? Where your perception of the world basically is altered by being able to properly place that kind of before and after, right? And, and you know, there are people who live in the before and after 9-11 world, right? There's, for, for us as individuals, there's the before and after big events, like the before and after you graduate from high school, the before and after college, the before and after you get married, the before and after a child, you know, et cetera, et cetera, all these kinds of things, right? Formative events. So to me, temporality then becomes the way in which as a subject, we're experiencing a variety of different individual or subjects or institutions, relationships to something like time, right? That then assembles a kind of relationship that to me is, is, is a common understanding of, of what I would consider to be temporality, where those kinds of befores and afters are assembled in a way that create a common understanding of the world. Now, what happens is, and what I'm exploring in this book is this notion of a fractured notion of temporality where the before and after of the diasporic black subject is fractured because of its relationship to the middle passage and the inability to properly access the kind of linear relationship of genealogy, the linear, these are things that Orlando Patterson deals with in, in, in his important book on, on these kinds of questions, right? Uh, slavery and social death, where, you know, this notion of natal alienation, all these kinds of things basically create a type of fractured temporal existence that doesn't allow what we understand as the common uh, human relationship, subjective relationship to the before and after, even of who your family members happen to be or who your family members happen to be in the future and a relationship to a common and, 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 and uh, unstable present. Now, that's a relationship. What I described first is, is, is in some ways kind of obvious because it's a relationship in the past that we can all think about, you know, the way the Middle Passage and, and, and diasporic Black people have me and in, 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 as an example of that don't have the possibility of tracing ourselves. And this is outside of the question of this DNA stuff that's happened recently, but to, to have a kind of family relationship that's traced easily back through a family tree to some place in, 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 uh, in a substance, typically West sub-Saharan Africa prior to the uh, middle passage or kidnapping and, and being brought through the middle passage. But that's also a futuristic relationship because the argument that I make in the book is that the notion of the primacy of death, right? The kind of, notion that death can arrive uh, out of sequence. Uh, and I'm thinking most particularly about the wages of state-based violence, mostly as police violence, where the notion that children are constantly always at risk, right? That, that you know, 
And we've seen this over and over again, right? That, you know, families who have to deal with children being killed out of sequence, right? So then the sequentiality of the relationship between the children bearing their parents is fractured in that way, right? You can make the same argument for uh, people who die as a result of military service, people, all kinds of reasons why, you know, parents are not meant to bury their children is kind of the, the kind of common way we understand that, right? When that relationship is altered, and some of this is Heideggerian, right? The kind of being towards death, when death is pulled directly into the present, it creates a, a fractured relationship with the temporality and also these questions of before and after that are the common understanding of what we consider to be time or the linear uh, progression of time. The same thing would go if you're thinking about the death row inmate or someone who knows the date, place, and methodology of their death is probably going to exist in a, in a fractured kind of temporal relationship. Also, my argument is that subjects who don't have predictable relationships to something like the, the progression of uh, birth, life, and death, also in a kind of fractured relationship with temporality. And that's what I think is particular about what I'm exploring in the book. And, and then the question of, to your point, right, the notion of homo liminalis means just that, right? The, the, and I'm thinking liminality in the sense that it's, 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 it represents itself in the limit function in calculus, which is an instantaneous snapshot of time, right? And some of this comes from uh, my relationship with kind of Ralph Ellison's work in Invisible Man, where he talks about these kinds of nodes where time kind of stops and you leap forward or backward with nothing in between that, right? So it's kind of these forward leaps that happen that have nothing to do with what we just discussed about the common relationship of before, after, and the notion of how the future kind of flows constantly towards us. And the present is this kind of slippery thing that you're not typically able to grasp onto because before it actually becomes, you know, the past, it's, it becomes this, this very slippery place that's the present that's going and there's a future kind of approaching you immediately. So uh, what Ellison is proposing is that there's a way in which certain subjects are able to extend that uh, cognitive relationship with the notion of the present that gives you a moment to sit in what he considers to be the break. And some of this is, is Moten too, right? Fred Moten's in the break. That becomes the break. And to me, that's a point of, of uh, it's a point of, of rest. It's a point of consideration. It's a point of, of just, uh, just manifold possibility, right? And both positive and negative, all kinds of things can happen. So what I'm trying to explore in, in this book is the, the question of how that space can become a positive space of, of, of subject regeneration. Thank you. Um, I want to make sure that I'm tracking with you. Uh, I think I am. Um, so a couple questions come to mind, some of it out of my own background in hermeneutics. Um, but just as a, a kind of basic thing, you know, parents shouldn't bury their children. And when you talk about out of sequence, you talk about birth, life, and death. And I think even as you're talking about that, this idea of life could be further subdivided into childhood adulthood and old age, and this idea that you go through the different stages of life. Um, as a very personal example, we have a relative um, that my wife is very close to. Uh, I'm close to her, but she grew up with this relative, and the relative is, I believe, 95, and has been in the emergency room six times in the last uh, year, and that is a sad thing. That is a, a grieving thing, but it's very, very different from, uh, for, you know, a child who has leukemia or something like that. Like there is a certain um, even release and just a, like it's much, it's a very different journey to become okay with the 95 year old's death than to become, to come to a good spot. Is that fair to like kind of expand on that a little bit? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, to, to your point, right. It's, you know, it's kind of notion of you'll hear this, right. When someone says they lived a good life, right. Yeah. Which, right. Even when someone is 95 years old, right, you look back and like, you know, this person basically has lived through a society that has changed so dramatically and has seen so many things. Right. And, and even when you get to that that end point, there's a sense of almost relief in the person going to a particular kind of rest. Right. Or, you know, the the the, the long durée of their life, they've earned the pot, the right to kind of, you know, go off into that 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 other place, whatever people happen to believe that is, right? But that's a different conversation when you're thinking about, uh, let's just use Tamir Rice, the kid who was shot to death by the police and playing outside with a toy gun. They show up in two seconds, shoot him to death, right? And and to speak about fractured temporal relationships and how they are represented by uh, different subject positions. So in fact, uh, the radio call 
from the police officer says something like black male age 21, you know, shot is is down. Right. And actually, it's a 12 year old kid that weighs 62 pounds. Right. It's not a 20 year old person who's six, three. So that individual who sees something is also dealing with a fractured temporal uh, cognitive relationship to the actual apparition of that body in front of him. It has everything to do with the way that person is experiencing something about uh, a particular subject positions, right? So to your point, the appearance of, of a 95-year-old person in hospice or, you know, whatever the case, right, going tight this notion, like being towards death, right? So as soon as you're born, you're necessarily dying, right? Necessarily. So that's the whole mortal thing, right? That's, you know, you know, this as being a person from you know, harmonics of religion, right? It's like, that's what makes us mortal, right? That's mortality is that, you know, the kind of, you're headed towards that. But to your point, right, there are all these things that fill in this, the space between birth and death, right? Now, what happens is in, in the subject matter that I'm discussing here and the preoccupation about the notion of fractured temporal relationships to something like life is that if death becomes a constant companion of life, then we have a whole nother conversation. So you have something like birth death, right? So you're born towards this question of death always appearing. Life death, right? You're living with death kind of as a constant companion, right? So think about the death row inmate. Think about people living in uh, in dire circumstances in war zones, right? That we, we we're witnessing kind of on a day-to-day basis right now, right? Where you, you become resigned towards the, the kind of notion of impending doom, right? Or you're thinking about... Uh, a person who for whom lives in, in, a, in a situation where you're constantly warned or worried about being killed and know that there's basically nothing you can do about it because it's predictably unpredictable. Right. As opposed to being a person who is born and, and you know, has all these kinds of predictable befores and afters that then are ultimately going to get to some place where you're 95 years old, you kind of shut it down. Right. And you kind of, you know, and, and you look back at your life, and you're kind of surrounded by your loved ones and, you know, all these kinds of things that we think of what happens to have you know, a good life and also what many in kind of Eastern philosophy or in Japanese thinking particularly would call a good death. Like, what does that mean to die a good death? Right. So what I'm saying is that the the notion of the kind of fractured temporality, that's a result of the long durée of the uh, the disruptive event of the Middle Passage. And we just use the Middle Passage to fill in for a bunch of different types of catastrophe. Right. That have happened situates that subject in 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 a uh, almost an untenable relationship with the linear progression of time that creates a type of temporal relationship or subject position that that I wanted to explore with the book and that I'm continuing to kind of think about. Uh, and forgive my ignorance. I mean, I'm pretty sure I know what you're talking about, but just for the sake of our audience too, when you say the middle passage, can you just give a brief definition of that? Yeah. So the middle passage is, is, is both an event of, of physical and, and, and actual space. So the, we're talking about the transatlantic slave trade where basically represented by uh, the point of departure, which is called the, the door of no return. And that's represented in, in West African ports, places like Senegal, Ghana, except Gory Island, et cetera, where uh, subjects entered into the middle pattern. The passage is just that, the, the, the sea passage from West Africa, typically to the West Indies and then, then for destinations and plantations around what became known as a new world, right? So that passage becomes both a physical manifestation, also a metaphysical erasure of the relationship between those people and what happened in in, in their lives or genealogy, intellectual genealogy, uh, familial relationships, et cetera, and something like wherever they came from in Africa with whatever ethnic group, with whatever geographic space, et cetera, that then that event then happens and then the plantation becomes uh the kind of necessary for the purposes of of white supremacy and the erasure of a relationship primordial relationship to africa and something like diaspora and to create something like diaspora and to erase the possibility of something like indigeneity then becomes the long durée of the middle passage right that then has echoes and things like jim crow segregation et cetera, et cetera, right? And kind of even our contemporary moment where you have, I was just, the other day, I was listening to some discussion about the disproportionate uh, infant mortality rates of kind of Black women in urban areas where, where it simply should not be the case, right? These, in my mind, are echoes of the Middle Passage that, again, both overflows its borders, both before and after it, to become a type of uh, seismic event, right? And there are lots of seismic events like that 
the Middle Passage being one that's that's that we that you know people in this tradition. You think about Toni Morrison's book Beloved as much about the Middle Passage. You think about uh, my colleague here at the University of Pittsburgh, Marcus Redeker's book work on Amistad and his work on the kind of Middle Passage itself, right, as as a kind of historical event that then has all kinds of uh, philosophical, we'll just use that term for the sake of argument, philosophical implications, right, about how subjects are formed, how subjects are disformed, and how subjects attempt to kind of reform, and I mean reform, not reform, but to reform themselves in the, in, in the, and this is uh, Christina Sharp's work, in the wake of that event, right, like in the aftermath of that kind of, uh, sea transit that is just that is really just that right some level just to transit across an ocean that then has so many other implications beyond that as you were talking about it earlier the word that came to mind for me was was rupture uh that yeah. rupture of history and identity is that another way of of would that be a synonym yeah absolutely uh rupture catastrophe you know disaster you know you can go through this poetry about this there's you know the zong incident that talks about the uh, murder of uh, human cargo, right? People who become, who are human who become cargo, who are thrown off the uh, vessel in order to render them an insurance claim because they weren't going to make it to the port in order to sell individuals. So the question for the captain becomes, how can I make the money? I can simply uh, throw the cargo overboard, human beings, right? Who So the rupture is not just a rupture, a geographic rupture, it's not just a genealogical rupture. It's also a rupture to something like a coherent relationship to humanity, the human, right? So back to where we started, right? So then if you're thinking about this kind of question of the caterpillar and you extend that across, like what does that mean to have been one thing before you enter the kind of cocoon of, think about the middle passage as a type of cocoon that comes out of it on the other side, all these things kind of happen. So the question becomes, what is the coherent relationship between the caterpillar and the butterfly and all things in between? And I, I don't want to overstep my bounds here, but one thing I appreciate about your metaphor, if I understand it correctly, is that the butterfly is actually quite beautiful. Right. Absolutely. Okay. All right. I want to make sure I understood that correctly. Yeah, but I did and, and also, and to this point, right, the caterpillar is also quite beautiful in and of itself, too, right? And all those things in between probably are. We just don't necessarily have access to them. So the question becomes very quickly, for me, what are those different apparitions of the same thing? thinking about themselves across that long durée, right? What does, the, what does the butterfly see when it looks in the mirror, right? Does the caterpillar know it's going to become a butterfly? Does the butterfly remember being a caterpillar? What is it, or does it think it still is? I mean, some of this, you know, this is, we see this across, you know, this is metamorphosis, right? This is the question of how to metamorph. What does the metamorph remember about itself before and after the event of metamorphosis? And does metamorphosis continue? Can it be reversed? You know, all these kinds of questions, right? And what, are, what is the system of cognition during the process of that type of radical change? Or, if it, or is it no change at all from the perspective of the knowing subject internal to itself, right? Is it, is it all just so predictable that it's not really a change, it's just a, a process, right? You know, because if we think about ourselves, right, I remember being a kid, right? And if I, if I thought back and we're like, you know, and, and, and honestly, right, I, you know, I was thinking, you know, like if someone had told me, when I was in college, that I'd end up being an English professor at the University of Pittsburgh, I'd be like, you know, that's <laughs> possible, right? There's so many other things that would have made complete, like a lot more sense to me, right? Than for that to happen. But if you if you sit back and carefully think through, you can kind of see the progression of, it. and some of it doesn't make sense until the end. But then you just wonder at what it, if you had known this information during the process, what it would have been like, or is the not knowing the actual thing that makes it the kind of the beauty of the transition that becomes the kind of butterfly thing that we become preoccupied with, right? And the fragility of the butterfly too, right? Because yeah. the butterfly always seems much more fragile to me than the caterpillar, right? The caterpillar seems super durable, right, to me. And like, you know, does all this kind of work and then to create this kind of butterfly that then becomes this, you know, really beautiful creature in its own right that, that also has a, a very, very fragile existence over time, right? It's like subject to, the wind becomes, you know, really difficult for the butterfly. You know, it it's it attracts attention because it's just that, right? It's so beautiful and apparent in the way that the caterpillar can hide itself and be different, right? So it's a question of the plasticity of the subject as well, right? That that is interesting in this in this entire process. Or thinking to your point, this kind of metaphor of metamorphosis, 
to think about that as how it relates to the diasporic black subject is what I'm dealing with in the, in the book. What, what do you think about the idea of different types of durability? Because like a caterpillar is really subject very much to its environment, where one of the amazing things about a butterfly, even though it's subject to the wind and so forth, I mean, it travels thousands and thousands of miles in a way that caterpillar is not capable. Right. Absolutely. Right. This kind of question of what does it mean to and the question of what is the horizon of possibility for particular subjects. Right. And this all gets back to this. Like, does a caterpillar know that its horizon of possibility is going to change dramatically? We can actually take the wind and fly thousands of miles. Right. Does the butterfly look back with nostalgia to the point where it didn't have to go anywhere? (laughs) You know, you know, all these these, these these super interesting questions. Right. It's like and, and, you know, I've seen. I've seen butterflies. This was just last summer, right? I was watching these butterflies at my house and there was a hummingbird and these butterflies basically ganged up on the hummingbird. And I was like, whoa, it's like, cause you know, chase it yeah. away for whatever reason. Cause I guess the maybe, and I don't know enough about this, right? And maybe somebody who's a, an expert in this would can send me a note and explain it to me. But I imagine that they're probably interested in the same type of nectar or something like that. Right. And so the butterfly was in the, you know, the hummingbird to me seems like a really, you know, uh, nimble, agile, and a creature that could really seem to cause it. But the, but the, I mean, literally the hummingbird was out of there because this butterfly was like, you know, basically chasing it away from whatever it happened to be going on. Whether that was like a, a kind of, you know, one-off event or something, I just, I was like, wow, that's nothing I never thought about before. But to your point, right, the, the caterpillar has particular, uh, has a particular zone of possibility, right? And that probably was also true for people who found themselves in central sub-Saharan Africa, where the question of going across the Atlantic Ocean was completely bizarre and had nothing to do with anything, right? It's like, you know, why would you want to do that, right? The world that they exist in is kind of full and and manifold and interesting and, and full of all kinds of possibility is the amount of time it took you to walk from kind of one place to the other over a certain amount of time, Right. That creates a relationship again. That creates a different relationship to a space-time continuum, but that's the kind of limitation of your possibility, right? So if we extend that to our own moment, right, it's like when you think about the way we're communicating right now would have been, you know, 10 years ago would have cost us about $50,000 to have this kind of conversation. Or we would, or 10 years before that, we would have corresponded by like a written letter, right? Or we could have planned to kind of meet someplace over time and, you know, have to fly there and all this kind of stuff, right? So we're in a, di- a much different uh, temporal environment while still dealing with the kind of linear progression of time that then allowed us to meet at a particular time. And the place becomes this kind of space that we've created kind of uh, through technology for ourselves. But all those things have changed the kind of limit, uh, the horizon of possibility for us as kind of subjects in communication in certain ways. And I imagine it's the same thing for the caterpillar, right? So yeah, so your question about the different, the 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 question of the durability and also the question of the possibility is interesting in, in, in ways that are really uh, relate itself to what the subject thinks about its own kind of limitations and to be able to think beyond them in certain ways. So to your point, right, does a caterpillar say, you know what, just any, just wait till I can actually fly, right? When it's like watching, you know, the world go by, it's like sooner or later I'll be in South America, right? It's like, you know, I'll get on some, you know, I'll be headed to wherever I'm going to go, and, you know, that kind of thing. Right. So, yeah, th- these are all things that, that are interesting to me and they relate themselves to just just that. Right. What does the subject who has a fractured relationship to where it's come from, uh, a world of kind of contentment, a world that had its own rules to then go through a catastrophic relationship that then shatters all those kinds of relations, those situations and then forces it to become uh able to exist in a completely different and foreign environment. Um, and forgive me, this question will be a little bit longer because I'm, I'm going to try and make some connections here. Sure. Um, from my own background in her, hermeneutics, uh, philosophical hermeneutics, uh, one of the books that was very really important to me was Paul Ricoeur's Time and Narrative. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but the, uh, you know, uh, when you mentioned Heideggerian time, uh, Record does a lot of work, uh, actually out of Augustine as well. That's part of the reason I was like, I mean, these names are coming up, right? Um, on identity, on the relation of history. Um, and one of the critiques I read about time and narrative was talking about it, that his account of time fails for the same reason Heidegger's account of time fails, 
because it doesn't answer the what the reviewer said was the objective. And what I would say is maybe if we think in terms of there's we can think of the world in terms of physics and we can think of it in terms of biology or psychology, right? Um, and I think this idea of temporality obviously relates to death. And so even as you talk about predictably unpredictable, everyone, like life itself is predictably unpredictable. If you go through and say life will continue as is, you are going to be <laughs> very disappointed or your expectations are going to be broken. Um, but what you're getting at is that there are fundamentally different experiences of that unpredictability, right? And so I, I guess what, I, what I'm asking about and trying to, because I could see where people might get frustrated with this discussion of time, is that we are, uh, if I understand you correctly, um, and this is a, a common occurrence, because I found Ricor, aside from this critique, very helpful, is that we are bracketing questions of physics and how are we able to coordinate time, these kind of objective standards. And we're talking about the way that we experience time and the way that the narrative shapes uh, our perception of time. Is that, is that bracketing fair so that we could uh, create that space for our discussion? Yeah, absolutely. Record is a, a huge uh, interlocutor for this book, right? And, and Record also helps us with this notion of you know, the kind of manifold. Uh, so, frankly, so record thinks about something like the past having components that are basically the past past, the present past, right? And the future past. So the kind of past past sits in the middle of these kinds of things that are coming towards it. And to your point, right, to try to grapple these in order to be able to have some kind of careful consideration of them becomes uh, simply almost impossible when your own relationship to all those things is from this question of the present present, right? So you're trying to basically situate yourself as a kind of, a, as, a, as, a, as an interlocutor speaking a different language, if that makes sense, right? So the, the, the march of, of kind of time and temporality speaks a, a, a type of linguistic that we have to struggle to situate ourselves in. Some of this, this is, this is, uh, this is Summa Theologica, right? This question of, you know, the angel time is the time that's between God time and human time, because this is, you know, deep within Catholic and, and kind of Christian orthodoxy in certain types of ways. Right. If if we're thinking about the Godhead as a being that has all awareness of all things and past, present, future, basically meaningless in that situation. Right. So then to communicate some information to a to a subject who past, present, future, the only way in which they can exist requires some kind of interlocutor, some intermediary. So the angel becomes that intermediary. It's able to kind of exist between those different types of time signatures and be able to express, hey, guess what? Right? If you don't get it together, you're going to really get punished pretty soon. Right? Like, yeah, right, right. It was like, you know, what does that even mean? Right. And so that that in, in you know, relating ourselves back to a kind of common uh, theological understanding of the way time works. And this is Augustine. Right. Again. Right. Why Augustine becomes so important and a threshold uh, thinker in this realm is this is the whole this is the question, right? The kind of central question of something like, what do we understand to be the relationship of the human to the divine? To me, is a fundamental relationship about something like temporality, right? Immortality situates, you know, people in a completely uh, fractured relationship or hyper, let's, if we think about the immortal in one way, but think about the hypermortal in a different way, right? That individual that relates to a type of hypermortality where death is always just right around the corner or death is omnipresent in a particular way is also a different type of subject in, in, on the far ends of a spectrum in the same manner that, that something like the human and the divine happen to be. Right? And so that's, that's what I'm kind of dealing with. And some of this becomes a goblin unearths this in, in, in his work with the uh, Homo Sacra in a particular way, right? It's of sacred man that, 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 can be punished, that can be killed, but not sacrificed. You know, all these kinds of things that, that seem almost paradoxical at the same time, but to me always relate themselves to a fractured relationship to something like uh, the, the kind of normal progression of life to death. And then the kind of post-death question of how then, and this is after the book got published, well after, but I'm kind of dealing with it in a new project now, is the uh, people might recall Breonna Taylor, after being killed by the police department, 
shows up on the cover of Vanity Fair magazine, right? And the and the and the the painting of Breonna Taylor was done by the same artist who had painted Michelle Obama's uh, official portrait for the the National Picture Gallery, right? So the point that I make, and then Tana Hissy Coates writes the article for Vanity Fair, and so it says a beautiful life, right? And it's like preoccupied with certain ways because I wish I'd never heard of Breonna Taylor, right? I wish Breonna Taylor had lived out this kind of like obscure kind of common existence and went about Breonna Taylor's business and never showed, like the chances of the actual Breonna Taylor prior to this catastrophe showing up on Vanity Fair magazine was absolutely zero, right? If, if there were possibly for it to be less than zero, right? There's absolutely no way that Breonna Taylor, the person who understood herself to be Breonna Taylor, could ever anticipate being on the cover of Vanity Fair magazine. So only in the relationship to this catastrophic relationship to something like state violence does the person become relative in a particular kind of way. And I mean, relevant, right, is the term I should use, right? Relevant in at all to register at that level, which is tragic, right? That's profoundly tragic because the individual just couldn't live out. And I'm using common here and in, in not in, as a hierarchical question, but common and just common, like just how people live. Breonna Taylor is born. Breonna Taylor goes to school. Breonna Taylor gets this job or doesn't, right? Has this successful relationship or doesn't, right? Uh, lives in this place or doesn't, gets to some point and, and passes. And that's it, right? And and then people be like, who's that? Oh, you know, somebody I knew from high school. Not somebody who was on the cover of Vanity Fair magazine because they were basically killed in tragic circumstances for no reason by a police department, right? So that to me is a type of liminal subject. And, and a person who who then in the aftermath or back again to Sharp's language in the wake of that catastrophe, the same catastrophe as the Middle Passage, becomes a type of subject who becomes with disproportionate importance in their lack of importance, right? The disposability of the life of the actual Breonna Taylor makes the afterlife of the the kind of post who I would call Breonna Taylor too disproportionately important. And only because of the, the, the event of this tragedy, this is back to our question of the before and after. So the before and after for Breonna Taylor is not something like life, birth, and death. It's birth, death, and outsized life relationship post-death that has nothing to do with the life of Breonna Taylor, but has everything to do with some type of catastrophe. That's a tremendously problematic and creates, and, and, is, and is a situation that we're kind of, you know, I say we, we as kind of human subjects, and we in particular in the Black radical thinking tradition of which I like to think I'm participating in are trying to figure out how to, how to parse that, right? How to come up with language to basically, uh, a hermeneutics, right? To basically be able to describe that properly and then to prescribe something to, to alleviate or ameliorate that circumstance. One of the things I really appreciate about, appreciate about what you just did was um, how much value and dignity you give to an ordinary life. Yeah, uh, and I think that, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, it's just, it, uh, and it is kind of uh, uh, an aside to what you're saying, but I, I think it, it um, because there are some people who would say, oh, man, I ended up on Vogue magazine and somehow that's better. And I, I sure. think that's like it, And I think that kind of. That's the uh, that's an immature and unstudied response, right? Like and, and not understanding like what makes people truly valuable and why right. it's important that she should have been able to have a normal life. Yeah, just common existence, you know, just that. Right. And to your point, right, there's beauty and dignity in just that. Right. Just to to get up and, and go about your business and, and have that be what you do and have like, you know, kind of the series of personal relationships that you have, the series of institutional relationships that you have, whatever they may be along some continuum. But just have that be what it is. Right. Without need of qualification or amplification is to me uh, what you would want. Right. At the end of at the end of the day. Right. To have this kind of these these layers of, of palimpsestic catastrophe create these kinds of subjects, right? You, you can go Michael Brown, right? You know, George Floyd, on and on and on. These people who are denied just the dignity of just commonality and, and everything that goes with commonality, right? The kind of pluses and minuses of anybody's life, right? Things go right. Some things work. Some things don't. People have difficulties. All that's nothing but just what being human is about, right? When that's denied or you become something's a person that people 
necessarily begin to care about in the in the, the sacrifice of that mortality is problematic to me in, in, in really important ways. Right. So, yeah, to rescue the kind of commonality of life and be able to to extol that and to be and, and to hope for that. Right. To hope that people can just, you know, live a common existence. This is back to where we were a couple of minutes ago. Right. Just, you know, you live and then, you know, it ultimately your parents pass and you go to the funeral and, you know, you, you're sad about it, but you also understand they lived a good life, right? There's something very good about that, right? There's something common. That's why those kinds of events and uh, actual celebrations of those events are so critically important, right? And I'm often struck by just in the aftermath of the kind of deaths that we're talking about, the kind of uh, sacrifices that were these people who are sacrificed to these these terrible institutional structures that are designed to kind of undermine the possibility of common existence is just the resignation of, of their families afterwards, right? When they go to these press conferences and it's just like, you know, you're watching these people and it's almost as if they, they knew it was going to happen, right? Or it reifies a particular understanding where, you know what, and if it doesn't, you're surprised at the fact that it doesn't, right? And that to me is terribly problematic. And so a lot of the work, and this was kind of the first step in that direction with this book, was to kind of lay out one important aspect of that complicated relationship. And to me, that was this question of temporality. I, I can't, uh, if, you, if you don't want to go in this direction or this, isn't, uh, this doesn't fit, that's, uh, that's fine. Um, I've had Dr. Lewis Gordon on multiple times. And as you talk about finding subjectivity, finding a place for black subjectivity in this temporality, uh, you know, I'm, I immediately think of fear of black consciousness. Sure. Uh, what relationship does your work have to what Dr. Uh, Lewis Gordon is doing? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, critically important relationship, you know, just as a practical matter, where I did my PhD in Africana studies at Brown, like Lewis Gordon was one of the people who pulled that whole thing together. And I just saw him a couple of weeks ago at oh, okay. <laughs> Patrick Henry, one of the professors there at Brown, right? Lewis was back. Patrick was retiring, right? So I kind of made my way to Providence and Lewis was there to be the kind of uh, keynote, if that's what, the way you want to describe it, speaker about the importance of Padgett in, in, in our intellectual genealogy, right? So yeah, so Lewis is, is an important uh, figure in that intellectual genealogy that I just mentioned that I participate in, right? And so his work on Black consciousness, his work on um, existentialism, all those kinds of things are formative and important. And my work would not be possible without having that relationship uh, in a coherent way and to, to be able to think about and frame what it is that I'm thinking about. So yeah, it's, it's, it's part of that whole conversation both in real and imagined, real ways in the relationship to kind of Brown and the, the way I was uh, taught, right? Kind of training that I received as a, as a PhD student. And also in, you know, the kind of, to your point, right? The kind of con the continual conversation with scholars work that happens in direct ways, but also with those who are also to yourself, right? Our conversation then is basically inflected by your relationship to what Lewis is doing. So we're having a conversation that, that meets in particular ways in that that are not directly there because we could have had we could have decided to have this conversation to talk about Lewis's book Fear of Black Consciousness right we could have come and used that as the kind of common text between us and actually in many ways that is a common text between us because all the things we're talking about relate themselves to it in that way right and that's how I like to look at uh, a relationship to different scholars etc so the core becomes important for us like this kind of you know Mutual interlocutors. Augustine becomes important because Augustine's important to record, is important to you, is important to me. You know, on and on and on. Right. That's how that seems to work for me. So yeah, uh, to long way around. Yeah, Lewis's work is important for everything that I'm doing. What I like about this, uh, and apologies, somehow I missed that whole connection. That's that's awesome. Uh, is that this is a, a very real example of what was lost in uh, things like the Middle Passage, right? Is that we have that we are able to trace because we have that continuity, and so right. um, and that's why that becomes the conditions uh, for a creative and um, beautiful possibility moving forward. What we're doing now, what uh, your work is, what your future project is on on death. Um, so I I want to be uh, respectful of your time, but I I feel like I would be remiss if I didn't ask. Uh, how does uh, 
how do you use Othello to talk about temporality and yeah. why Othello? So I've always been, you know, they're kind of, you know, everybody, these five or six books that really matter to you, right? And Othello's always been one. I like Shakespeare, like I've said in other form, right? And I'll stand by it. That as far as I'm concerned, as an English, as an English person who works in the, in the linguistics of English, Shakespeare's probably one of the most important political theorists ever, right? So if you think about questions of sovereignty, right? Richard III, Julius Caesar, you think about questions of anti-Semitism, what he did with, with Merchant of Venice hasn't been overcome. And for questions of anti-Blackness or misogyny, et cetera, Othello is that book, period, right? So what I'm doing with Othello is to think carefully about Othello as a, as a liminal figure, right? As an outsider who, who basically does service to the state, right? And Othello says this over and over again, right? He's given certain service to the state of Venice to the and he to the city state of Venice and expects certain things in return, citizenship, right? That's what he wants. And part of the the citizenship and this is Othello, overlapping Fanon on top of Othello. He thinks that part of that citizenship then becomes the notion of being able to be in a coherent matrimonial relationship with a, a Venetian, a white person, and that can't happen, right? That cannot happen, which shows him the limitations of his citizenship possibility even in the face of his disproportionate service to the state, right? They need Othello, right? At the very beginning of it, when he, you know, when they're looking for him, when Yago's running around sounding the alarm about Othello all over Venice, he's being summoned to go see the, 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 the leaders of, of Venice to get him to go basically fight this war for them. And at the same time, he's supposedly in trouble because he's stolen away Desdemona, right? And, and the question becomes, you know, what is the, what, what witchcraft did you use, right, to kind of, and he's like, the witchcraft was basically, I told the story of my life, basically. And she was interested in it, right? And that's how it all happened, right? And so the reason Othello works for me in that situation, I'm still in this consideration. This is, this is and, and this is back to your question of intellectual genealogy, right? Uh, Fred Moon has this, this, this article about something like why we have to forget Othello, right? He's like, we have to be done with Othello, <laughs> period, right? Like, no, no more Othello. Right. And to me, those are those are not those are not disagreements. Those are possibilities. Right. Because I, I disagree. I think Othello is, is still something that we have to spend our time kind of thinking through. Right. And there are those who are like, you know, we've had about enough of Othello. Right. It's like because it's, it's fraught with these kinds of misunderstandings. It's fraught with these kinds of possibilities to miss uh, to over determine certain kinds of things. I get all of that. Right. But I think it's a super important text because of its durability. Uh because of the, the, the common themes that recur even hundreds and hundreds of years later that Shakespeare had perceptively put in front of us to kind of push us to be like, in certain ways, why are you still dealing with this problem, right? Why does this still matter? Right after I thought about this, you know, back in the Globe Theater, God knows how long ago, like, why are you still having these same kinds of conversations? Uh, so that's why it's important. But I thought just to the point, right, that kind of detail about Othello's notion of a particular type of um super citizenship or super service to the state would then convey upon him something like a, a type of common citizenship was not true. Right. So with, with that, you then have to think about, uh, Du Bois deals with this, right? So, you know, in, in the early 20th century, the early 1900s, right. It's funny when you're born in like the sixties and I have had students say stuff like, you know, can I use a late 1900s text? It's like, <laughs> like 1990. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's what it is, right? It's like a late 1900s text. Uh, yeah. So in the early 1900s, Du Bois is, is pushing for uh, the possibility of Black service in the military in order to create this notion of a, a type of citizenship that we see represented all the time, right? When you get on a plane, they're like, hey, if you happen to be an active duty military person, you get on a plane before everybody else, right? It's like, why? Right? It's like, And I was a person who, you know, I was in the Navy and I'm like, that seems dumb, right? It seems ridiculous. Right. Like it seems like maybe school teachers should get on first or maybe, you know, because none of us would be possible without third. They should be like, you know, third grade teachers. You know, if there are any third grade teachers out there, you know, first class is reserved for you all because you put up with more and make everything possible for all of us and waste it. You know, none of this is possible without the third grade teacher. Right. And so, yeah. And that's so that to Othello to me is 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 put is a placeholder for that kind of complicated thinking. Right. What does it mean to give a certain type of service to the state and have your uh, embodiment 
and the understanding of your embodiment prevent the receipt of those things you think come along with that, right? You know, you've done this, that, the other, you're supposed to get this, that, and the other, and it doesn't happen. So now you're back to this kind of question of abjection where you thought you were going to be, just norm yourself back to citizen, right? Kind of center space of existence, right? Common, a common, again, back to the notion of the commons, just be a citizen, right? And be able to be protected by the police rather than killed by them. Like, how about if you call the police and they come to your house and don't kill you because you called them, right? That'd be cool, right? Or how about if, you know, how about if you, you're, you're, uh, your turn signal's not working and a police officer pulls you over and doesn't kill you, but just tells you, hey, I noticed that your thing's not working. You know, we have these vouchers that you can take to a local place to get your turn signal fixed instead of like the guy having a gun out because he thinks that somehow in your mind, getting a ticket for a bad turn signal is 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 something that you would rather replace with a capital murder charge, right? It's just the kind of absurdity of that logic, right? That's what Othello's th- talking about to me. That's what Othello's talking so yeah, that's why Othello is 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 central to to the book for me in lots of ways, and continues to be important to me. Yeah, um, a beautiful answer. Thank you. Uh, as we draw to a close here, besides reading your book, which I would definitely recommend, um, what uh, what would you encourage people to do who have listened to uh, this podcast over the next week after listening to this? What should they chew on, or what should what's one thing they should uh, try to do? I mean, I think for me and, and the work I'm doing now is to, to think carefully about how uh, joy and love basically situate themselves at the end, at the end of this. Right. So I would do that. Right? I would try to find something that, that makes you happy, like, you know, and, and try to find, and some of that, you know, this is, you know, this is, this is stuff that's been well documented by other thinkers, right? This is in, in many ways, what Leroy Jones was up to with blues people, what Ellison's up to, what Morrison's up to, with all this kind of art to me that gets produced that, that speaks to a type of beauty out of this exact situation of kind of pain and strife and coercive force that we're talking about, right? There's also this question of the, the beautiful things that get produced by that. So I would I would say, you know, and this is not to be Pollyannish or like, you know, Willy Wonka and a chocolate factory is on the rest. Like, no, just find those things. Understand that these things come out of a particular uh, system uh, of a fractured relationship to something like a coherent relationship to the time and stuff like that, but also understand how they create beauty, how beauty is created out of that. And then to think about how that's a space or a point of departure for new types of possibilities. That's what I would propose to people do, if that makes any sense at all. It does. Uh, Dr. Sawyer, what a beautiful way to end today. Uh, thank you so much for coming on. 